Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 52. Have you heard about NoSQL databases or wondered how to use one with Python? How does MongoDB store information and what packages can you use to connect this type of database to your Python project? This week on the show, David Amos is back and he's brought another batch of PyCoders Weekly articles and projects. David talks about a recent RealPython video course about managing namespaces in Python. We also take a look at a few recent stories about the Python packaging ecosystem. We cover several other articles and projects from the Python community, including generating customizable PDF reports with Python, how semantic versioning will not save you. PEP 621 is final. A user hits the Python community with 4,000 fake modules, making a synth with Python, and what is running on the Mars helicopter. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, David. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me back again. All right. We've got a whole bunch of interesting PyCoder stuff. Yeah. This kind of combines a few things that we've talked about in the past. Uh, I had Mike Driscoll on to talk about PDFs and Report Lab, and we've talked about Leodonis's like entire massive PyQt PyQt learning path that dives super deep into it. But this article combines them together in a really kind of fun way, and in my opinion, it makes a, a very useful tool. Yeah, that I was again I've mentioned several times about talking with small businesses and creating tools for them, and this like in a small amount of code, you're making a customizable PDF report builder with Python and PyQt. And it, you know, uses all those things. It also uses uh, something else we've talked about before, which is PDF RW, which is a very nice tool in Python for working with PDFs. And it's uh, by Martin Fitzpatrick from learnpyqt.com. Basically you go through this process of creating, uh, starting out with a template PDF so that if you have I don't know, say a letterhead or a certain kind of look and feel for an existing form that you want to have generatively filled out either by a, someone going in and filling out the form field by field via a PyQt layout, it can do that. Or you can have it generate it based upon a set of fields coming in from something like an Excel file or a CSV file. And they show you both and it's pretty slick. And so it kind of goes through the whole process of building up not only where the forms will lay out inside there, uh, the PyQt fields, how to kind of create this thing called a generator inside of that. And then it's, I don't know, it's really slick. I was impressed with the the code, got it running on my machine pretty easily. And I could see customizing it pretty quickly into a solution for, again, some of these small businesses. That was a really common thing for me to do is build um, fillable forms for them. And this would even take it to another level of having it run on here. I could see maybe even combining it with something like Beware. And I know that mm, yeah. uh, Russell had an announcement and uh, I guess Beware is working on M1 Max, which is cool too. So a new version of Beware out there. Yeah. 
So check it out. It's a it's a neat little article kind of diving into customizing PDF reports and combines all these little technologies that we've talked about. Very readable, very easy to get up and running. And it seems like a neat site. Again, if you want to dive even deeper into uh, learning PyQT, learnpyqt.com looks like it's got lots of other interesting resources um, for free to check out too. Yeah. One cool thing about this article too is all of the code examples have little tabs at the top of them. Yeah, yeah, like for to, versions. Yeah, yeah, to switch between like the code using PyQt5 or PySide2 or PyQt6 or PySide6. So he's got the different implementations there for each yeah. each one, which is pretty cool. This is a fun little joke in the whole thing. I don't know if I should spoil it or not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of what you're creating. So hopefully you'll find that as a fun little surprise for those of us who've uh, seen that movie. So... <laughs> <laughs> We were going to dive into a, a pretty intense topic next that we're going to hit from multiple sides. And so I guess we'll have you start with your first article. Yeah, it, it's kind of, we got a little packaging theme going on. Yeah. And the first article that, that I've got is by Heinek Schlawak, and it's called Semantic Versioning Will Not Save You. And this first popped onto my radar, well, not this particular article, but there was a lot of chatter on on the Twitter about a pretty emotional GitHub thread. That's actually Hynek's words that he uses in uh, in his article, and it's very accurate. There was a lot of high emotions involved, but the the Python package cryptography changed their build system, their build system, to use Rust for low level code. Yeah, and this was a pretty big change in the build system. It's important though to remember this is the build system. This is not Effect like when you when you pip install cryptography, you're installing from a wheel that's already been built, and so there's no like Rust dependency for using cryptography or anything like that. But this change in the build system caused quite a stir, and the way that Heineck describes this, he says, enthusiasts of 32-bit hardware from the 1990s aside, there was a vocal faction that stipulated adherence to semantic versioning from the maintainers, claiming it would have prevented all of the grief. And there was a lot of pushback to that. There was also a lot of people saying, yeah, they broke semantic versioning. And this this article does it 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 kind of doesn't take a side on whether or not semantic versioning was actually broken, although it kind of does in a footnote. <laughs> um, uh, but but the point of the article was not whether or not this actually broke semantic versioning. The point was that even if it had broken or had not broken this reliance on semantic versioning to sort of save you from any breaking changes is not necessarily a good mindset to have and so kind of if if you're not familiar with i guess for listeners that aren't familiar with semantic versioning yeah so i was thinking is maybe we could take a step back and and kind of explain what that means because i feel like there's a lot of this sort of stuff in the packaging world that we've tried to decode a little bit and sort of explain and semantic versioning is one of those that it's a lot of big words. You're like, okay, well, what does that mean? And what are the rules? Right. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty common. It it might be the most widely used way of, of expressing versions of packages. I'm not, I don't know that for a fact, but it just seems like you see it all over the place. Yeah. What it is, is you have a version number, say something like 1.10.0, right? So the first number in that triple is the major version. 
so version one. The second number is the minor version, so that would be minor version 10. And the last number is called the patch version or the micro version. And so in this case, it would be zero, right? 1.10.0. And the idea, so semantic version is supposed to come with like, okay, not only do I have this version number that describes, that sort of breaks it down into like this major, minor, and, and patch version, but there's also supposed to be kind of this promise that as long as the major version doesn't change, I'm guaranteeing no backwards incompatibility or no breaking changes. Mm. So that if you had version 1.9.0 installed and you upgraded to 1.10, in theory, it should just work. There wouldn't be, it wouldn't cause any, any issues. Right. So, I mean, this is all theoretical though. I mean, there's nothing about semantic versioning that actually guarantees this. It's up to the maintainers of packages. <laughs> you can use it however you want, right? You can use it however you want. Yeah, exactly. But Right. It, it kind of goes back to that zero ver thing I've heard people say too. It's like there's these people that hung on to like 0.75.1, you know, or whatever, <laughs> you know, where like the zero ver goes on forever. Right. Yeah. But you're right. There, That's not, it's not, those aren't rules. These are just <laughs> guidelines. <laughs> it's, it's an idea. It's a guideline. It's sort of like how it's quote unquote supposed to work. But yeah, and in, in the the whole zero ver thing is like your your major version is zero, so it's it's sort of like this this uh, offshoot of semantic versioning where you you keep your major version at zero, and the idea is that until you get your major version to one, it's kind of anything goes. Like the API could totally change. It's beta. <laughs> it's it's exa- yeah exactly. Yeah. It's like it's a beta type type thing. So so that's what semantic versioning is, and he talks about in the article, this Hiram's law, which basically states, with a sufficient number of users of an API, it does not matter what you promise in the contract, all observable behaviors of your system will be depended on by somebody. So even if you have, say, a bug, <laughs> yeah, and someone is utilizing this bug in some way that they're relying on it, then when that bug gets fixed, for them, that's a breaking, a breaking change. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ba- I mean, basically, it's it's impossible to predict like how a change is going to affect all of your users if you have a wide enough user base. Yeah. And the point of this article is just that you know the responsibility for for packages falls on both ends. There's the package maintainers that have a contract and are supposed to follow that. But as a user of a package, it's your responsibility to to not assume that just because there wasn't a bump in the major version that everything is going to work fine. You need to test it. You need to take some responsibility yourself right. and not just blindly expect that this contract wasn't wasn't broken. And if it was, I mean, you know, to alert the maintainers in a constructive manner and and be a good citizen and help help them with that. So he he lists some some things that I, I want to just kind of rattle them off for a second because I think it's, you know, if for for reader for listeners that don't read the article, it's important stuff to to keep in mind. And one is have tests with good coverage. Pin your dependencies to exact versions and regularly try to update your dependencies to their latest versions. And if your tests pass, then you can pin to the new versions. So this is kind of a 
a framework for when a new version is released, you know, how you can go about upgrading. The the wrong way to do it is to say, oh, they released a new version. So, uh, you know, I'm going to go into my requirements file and pin it at the new version and then push it out and, you know, everything's going to be okay yeah. and, and nothing, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. Well, I think about the, the pinning technique of using like the greater than kind of thing potentially could be problematic there too. It could. Yeah. You know, you're, you're, you're going to, you got to think about how you're going to pin like from here down or probably preferably equal equals, you know, this is the version that we're, we're, you know, we've tested on and it works on. So. Right. Yeah. There's this, there's kind of this mindset I've heard where, you know, if you're writing a library, you should pin your, your dependencies. If you're writing a, an application, you can kind of fudge it a little bit and use the, the greater than and less than, or, you know, those kinds of uh, version specifiers. I tend to just pin everything just because I know, Hey, I've got it working. Yeah. And you know, Upgrading a dependency can be a hassle because, especially if that dependency has several other dependencies. Right. But you know, if you pin it, then then you know it's going to work when when it gets distributed, whether it's an application or a or a library. So you know, take that how you will if if you're listening in. But but anyways, it's just a really I thought it was a really good article with really good advice on how you should approach upgrading your your dependencies and where responsibility falls with all this. So, and I'll just read it, what he has at the end here of the article. He just says, so please use version numbers only for ordering releases, take responsibility for your builds and don't harass maintainers to provide you with even more free labor that has only marginal upsides for you at best. So basically be a good citizen. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. Especially if you're depending on it. Yeah, and the systems that I think that were having a problem were, like you said, like really they're pretty archaic. It was at least commented on the Twitter thread. Yeah, I mean they're they're you know specific old hardware. You know, I I my own breaking change with hardware this week of upgrading to a Mac uh, M1 you know <laughs> processor, and my expectation that a twenty year old MIDI interface that has a USB port on it, why shouldn't it work? You know that that's kind of a little you know steep you know, for, for even me to, to get upset about it. But I, I see people get upset online. You know, I've read those forum posts myself. So it, you know, it's one of these things and I, I can understand there's like, there's limits to uh, the hardware and software and um, also open source. Uh, there's going to be limits. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, it's, you know, especially if you're approaching it with good faith, <laughs> you would hope. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean's app platform. DigitalOcean's app platform is a new platform-as-a-service solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub repository and let App Platform do all the heavy lifting related to infrastructure. Get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. That's do.co slash realpython. Next one is is about a new PEP that's been in the works for a little while. It's PEP 621, and it's sort of the announcement that PEP 621 is final. And it's uh, a PEP from, well, Brett Cannon's one of the lead people on it. And yeah, he sort of spoke about this really briefly on our episode together. 
and I may have him come back and talk a little bit about it because he's he's really a champion on on packaging, kind of going back down this packaging thing. Yeah. And the note is that in the near future, you'll be able to store project metadata in pyproject.toml files. And uh, toml is another sort of markdown style file. Um, it actually stands for Tom's obvious minimal language, <laughs> which is kind of a funny name. And I guess that's uh, by Tom Preston Werner and uh, Pradian Getum. What might be good for people to do, and I'll include links for this, is there is a post from last March, almost a year ago, exactly um, from Brett Cannon that's titled, What the Heck is PyProject.toml? Yeah. And uh, it goes back to Pi, uh, PEP 5.18, and 5.18 and PyProject.toml changed. Now a tool like PIP can read the PyProject.toml and see what build tools are specified at it and install those in a virtual environment to build your project. That means you can rely on specific versions of setup tools and wheel if you want. Heck, you can even build with a tool other than setup tools if you want. And then those are other tools that can rely on the same uh, file called Flit or Poetry. You might've heard of these. Yeah. But since these are other tools require PyProject.tomals and their users are already familiar with that. The key point is that assumptions no longer need to be made about what is necessary to build your project, which frees up packaging ecosystems to be to experiment and grow. Okay, so the things that are in this PyProject.toml file can communicate with PyPI for uploading, and it sort of standardizes those names and the fields, things like the name of the project, and you know that's necessary for the file name, the version. Going back to what we were talking about of like potentially, you know, how you want to do your versioning number, the description, which is sometimes described as a short description and then an actual readme and then requires, which goes back to pinning and the idea of like, you know, what are the things that are needed to build this thing? The other dependencies that are in there, a license, the authors and maintainers. And that would include like not only authors names, but also their potential, their email addresses and ways to contact them, keywords and classifiers, and then uh, URLs, which are a whole set of uh, URLs that could be, you know, where the docs are, where the you know, project's hosted, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's really just sort of standardizing a lot of that. A TOML file feels a lot, almost like a JSON file, the way that it's mm-hmm. sort of organized. Um, it's very much uh, in sort of a dictionary sort of style. It's something that's hard to describe over audio, but I'll include links not only to the post about PEP 621 being final, but again, um, the blog post from Brett Cannon. And then there's uh, some other information I'll include there that is the discussion going kind of behind it and then finally kind of coming to consensus. A lot of consensus lately, which is great. Great to hear um, kind of early in the development of the next version of Python. And again, anything to make this stuff be more standardized, I think is great. Um, Standardizing the tools. I think that's a bit of a complaint people have had about the Python ecosystem is sort of packaging in general. And we've been touching on it a lot, you know, like what are wheels, what are, what are SDIS, what are these other kinds of things? And this is one of these things that's going to help try to, I don't know, narrow the landscape a little bit, make it a little more easier to understand and describe. Again, this is really tools for people that are maintaining packages and sort of describing the recipe that, you know, not only created this thing, but also, all the ways to uh, rebuild it and can be read by these other tools to make it much simpler. Yeah. 
So then <laughs> we got another packaging story. <laughs> yeah. And, and speaking of, of packaging and, and I guess making it even easier to package, you know, with, with more power comes more responsibility. And <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there was an example of misuse of, or some irresponsibility, I guess, recently in yeah. with the Python package index. And this is, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, but but it, it just kind of came across my radar within the last week or so. And this was, you know, there, there's been, I guess we should preface this by saying, and we've talked about this a little bit in previous episodes, where there's been these cases of malicious packages that are sort of mimicking commonly installed packages by by leveraging like common misspellings. So like if you're trying to pip install requests and you swap the U and the E on accident, like if there's a package called re requests with the like EU instead of UE, then you'd be installing that and you don't know what it does and it might uh, it might do something malicious. And we talked about that file that potentially run code depending on how right. you're installing it. So yeah, and just recently there was a PyPI user with the the name remind supply chain risks which is kind of an unusual name <laughs> and executed what is i guess kind of like a supply chain attack which is or was sort of bringing to light this this thing there's something called a supply chain attack and this is where you have say a bunch of private packages that might share a name with a public package. And if you're not careful, when you're pip installing those, it might reach out and grab the public version and not the private version. So you're not installing the version, not installing, not the version, I should say. It could be a totally different package, but there might be like a public package with the same name. You might be installing something that you just don't even know anything about you don't you know and just it just shares the name and nothing else so this user uploaded somewhere around 4000 fake packages basically to pypi in a very short amount of time and the fortunately the the pypi team removed them very quickly and i think at this point there's nothing there's nothing on there but there was this this kind of attack i think it's important to note too that this is not something that's like specific to python and it, it's really yeah. any any language that has like this uh, this public package uh, repository that you're installing from. I mean, JavaScript has something like this with like the M npm, and and is subject to similar kinds of attacks. It's you know it's something just that can happen, and people need to be aware of. And the thing that I like about this article is it gives four sort of actionable items at the end that people that are installing packages need to just be aware of. And the first one is kind of kind of obvious, like you shouldn't have to say this, but I guess you do because because of incidents like this. And that is don't do mass bogus uploads like this just to like prove a point or something, which is kind of what this this user was doing. <laughs> yeah. And don't choose a PyPI package just because the name looks right. Check that you're really downloading the right module from the right publisher. Even legitimate modules sometimes have names that clash, compete, or confuse. So before you download it, you can go to pypi.org. You can type in the name and you can see where does that come from? Like who is the publisher? And a lot of times there's even an email. I mean, you can, you can kind of do 
a little bit of a due diligence and uh, and just make sure that you're actually downloading the right package there. All the things that we were just talking about are listed, the the name, the version, the description. Right, yes. Um, all those things that come out of them. Yeah, that metadata that, yeah, they're moving over to, or they're, they're putting up, now you'll be able to put in PyProject Tomlin. Yeah, that metadata is listed on uh, pypi.org. You can even see it uh, using pip, like once you've, once you've downloaded it. You may not even have to download it, but you can use like a pip show to show a, uh, yeah. to, to show metadata about a package. Another important important point is don't hook internal projects to external repositories by mistake. So if you're using Python packages that you haven't published externally, then one thing you can be sure of is that all external copies of your package are imposter modules and might be malware. So don't accidentally hook your, your internal projects to external repositories. And don't blindly download package updates into your own development or build systems. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the uh, Hynex article about semantic versioning is just this blind reliance is what can can get you in some sticky situations. And, you know, I mean, if, if you're just doing a pet project on, on your computer, and especially if you're like, you know, not even hooked up to the internet, which I guess you'd need to be to download something from, from PyPI, but, you know, this, it, it's not, I guess it's not as big of a deal unless there's something really malicious going on and it's it's you know trying to find private information on your computer this is really for you know people who are are working with uh with code that's going to be running in production that's going to have lots of users that's that's going to be relied on by other people a company or or something like that but it's just good practices this is all just really good practice and it's just again it's not something that's specific to python even it really is just the state of modern software. These are just things that people need to be aware of and need to be thinking about and taking responsibility for. So lots of PSAs today. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, it's us today. Diving into some real Python content here. I mentioned Leo Donis earlier in Leo Donis' proposal, Ramos. He's updated an existing article that was fairly popular on Real Python about Python and MongoDB. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, I know there's a lot of MongoDB fans out there. Um, if you're not familiar with MongoDB, it's a no SQL database. It basically doesn't require the same sort of uh, schema and tables and stuff that is very, very structured with, with standard SQL style databases. It, it uses, a, going back to talking about you know, dictionaries and, and JSON format, it uses a very JSON-like style format as far as like how things are sort of organized and how you insert things into the database and how you you know pull them out. And this article dives into, well, basically setting up Python to interact with it. And so I, I followed along, you know, that's a very common thing for me to do is to, to make sure that I am comfortable going through and repeating all the steps that are in it before I go and start talking about it on the show. And so I saw very quickly that you'd have to install Mongo DB on your computer. And I was hesitant to do that because I, I usually use virtual environments uh, for these kinds of tests because I you know do all sorts of different ones in reviewing video courses and doing this show and things like that. And it's nice to be able to, you know, not necessarily have a very uh, messy, you know, internal environment for all these kinds of things. Yeah. And so instead of installing it all from scratch, I said, well, let me, it looks like I could probably do this via Docker. And use a Docker container, and the instructions don't go real deep into using Docker specifically. So I'm going to include a, a link that might help some people with it. 
because I ran into some trouble. <laughs> um, I was able to do all the standard stuff with it and was able to, you know, break into like a shell and, and talk to the database. And it looked like I was making a client connection because, you know, usually if you're doing this sort of internal development, you use like a local host and then a port number. And all that seemed to be working fine, but then whenever we tried to insert stuff, it would just say no connection. And so anyway, I learned a, a better way for me to set it up, which is you know kind of knowing more about the commands of using Docker and specifically setting up the port for MongoDB. Yeah. So regardless, a little bit of a technical stuff uh, to get into. Um, this article shows off two technologies, two uh, packages that help with this. One's called PyMongo, and the other one's Mongo Engine. And then it has references for deeper stuff that kind of get into almost ORM object relation, you know, model sort of stuff with Mongo. If you need more of that, you know, want to be able to kind of talk objects back and forth between Python and that. But it's really well done. It's, it's you know, really updating it to make it uh, work and a little bit more modern. You know, a lot of these packages have changed a lot in four or five years. And so Leidonis did a good job getting all that going. I think it's a nice introduction if you haven't played with no SQL databases or Mongo specifically and get you going on it. After a little bit of a headache of <laughs> trying to get connections going, I was able to get uh, go through it and get it working pretty well for myself. Mostly you're doing stuff kind of in a REPL, but again, this other article I'll include it has a link kind of even, you know, shows you a couple of scripts that you could use uh, again, just sort of sending and receiving data and, you know, getting it talking. It's a nice introduction to the topic and nice way to kind of show you some of the packages that you could use to, Get Python talking to it. Yeah, MongoDB is uh, is pretty cool. I I haven't used it a lot. I I've in fact I've never used it in like production or or anything like that. It's always just been to to play around with. But I know that um, I know for example Mike Kennedy really really likes it. I think yeah, he's a huge user. Yeah, yeah, I think he uses it on pretty much everything. And and it, the format's nice. And yeah, it's, I mean it's kind of convenient. Like you said, it's got the JSON style. Yeah kind of formatting for documents and things like that. Yeah, it's really super document based so that the the types of things you can you can store in it right. uh, feel more like a, a big bag of <laughs> differently shaped things as opposed to the the structure that is required of the other types of databases that you know, we've talked right. about mostly where you literally I need fields for everything if not it's going to be null here or whatever it, it's very very different. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's a different kind of mindset and i i know like for me having come from the you know relational databases yeah and everything at first it was it was kind of confusing yeah <laughs> like it really took uh, a while to kind of click like how it really worked and like what what i could do with it and why it might be better in some cases than than what i was using before so yeah it's definitely different yeah Cool, but uh, yeah, it's definitely being used more and more. Yeah, just the types of data that are out there, and you know, definitely with social media and big data, it's that's where I started to see more and more and more not only places using it, but you know, articles and resources kind of pointing to this. Uh, maybe we need something beyond a you know structured <laughs> relational database. So right, cool. You got another real Python recent posting here. I do, yeah. And it's a it's a course actually a video course uh, not an article. It's from Johan Vergier. Uh, hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. But uh, it's called "Navigating Namespaces and Scope in Python." And I was excited to see this come out. 
uh, because I think that this is a topic that, well, it's it can be confusing in any yeah. programming language. <laughs> I think it's particularly confusing in in Python because the rules seem very different from from a lot of other programming languages. And so, yeah, it was it was just nice to see this, you know, see this coming out, and so that people can can learn how this works. It's such an important part of programming. I mean, that's even uh, there's there's a whole line in the Zen of Python about you know namespaces are are great. We should we should do more of those. Yeah, and and it is. I mean, it's really it's a it's a great tool, but you need to understand scope when you when you get into this and how that how that works. And the course walks you through, you know, how Python organizes symbolic names and objects into namespaces, when when a new namespace is created, and and how you can implement namespaces. There's also it also dives into variable scope, how Python determines when names are visible. So this is like, for example, if you have a variable called x defined kind of at the root of your Python file, then if you declare another variable called x like inside of a function, this is like how it knows that that x is not the same as the other variable x and and things like that. So so scope is is really an important topic. But it, I think it kind of gets overlooked by beginners. And there's some confusing things that can happen if you don't understand how scope works that for a beginner can just be like, you know, the bash your head against your desk repeatedly <laughs> for, for an hour trying to figure out like, why, why isn't this working? Like, what's going on? And then it also introduces the LEGB rule, which is kind of a, it's a mnemonic for remembering how Python scope rules work. And it stands for local enclosing, global and built in. I won't talk about all the details of what all those words actually mean, but but that is a rule that you can use to to kind of know where you are in the in the scope in the land of scope in in Python. So yeah, it's it's a really great course. It's not a super long course, yeah. So you can get through it pretty quickly, but it but it covers a lot of really important topics and. Yeah, I think the whole thing is uh, it's 27 minutes. If you get an extra half hour, then and and you don't know much about scope or it's it's a it's a sticking point for you, this is a great a great video course to check out. Highly recommend it. Johan's one of our new instructors and I was helping him get it going and he was going through the LEGB rule and he had this example at the end where he sort of removed all references you know like definitions of this thing and so you can actually see in an error statement kind of going from bottom up it looking through all of those and so i i, I said man oh, we should cool. focus on this because i think it's really good to see it looking in the local space then looking in the enclosing space then looking in the global space and not finding it right. you know and um and then the error print printing it out and kind of explaining it and so that was a really fun discovery for both of us to kind of like this would really help again that's the advantage of you know some of the visualness of of the the video courses you know like that you can kind of see right. this in action so yeah so it's, it's a nice course and got some really good feedback on it already awesome so time for projects yeah got a couple <laughs> of cool projects today. yeah when you pop this one in on PyCoders, I was like, oh man, this is for me <laughs> again. Yeah. So everybody knows I'm really into sound and uh, synthesizers and MIDI and that sort of stuff. And this is a another dive into that. Uh, it's a three-part series, basically 
calling making a synth with Python. It's on medium. Mm -hmm. Um, actually I don't remember it counting down my count. So I think it's one of the freer ones, which is nice. Yeah. I think it's free. Yeah. It starts off with really just the idea of an oscillator. And this is kind of goes into some of your love of math and, and, you know, working with, Mm -hmm. uh, creating sine waves, creating square waves, creating all these kind of waves. And then I really like the idea that, you know, this is what you should be hearing. <laughs> this is what it sounds like. He includes all these SoundCloud little links. So you can kind of get an idea of what you're going to be creating with that. The name, you know, the person who created this basically just says Alan. <laughs> and it's Alan's Medium blog, uh, which is kind of interesting. No last name given that I could find. Yeah. But after going into a pretty deep dive in oscillators, which you could run either in Python or in a Jupyter notebook, he moves on to what are called modulators, which is... In synthesizers, there's a section, they're kind of broken into parts, where it's like you know, there's the raw oscillator, uh, the, the the waves themselves, and then modulators are basically determining things like, you know, how fast the sound should start up, like an attack, um, how quickly it should decay, or should it hold the sound long, or should it have some kind of impact when you're holding the note down or you know when you let go of the note how quickly should relief so it's this thing called an adsr the attack decay sustain and release so he kind of talks about that and creating those kinds of things and then dives into controllers which is how could you control this either via you know just like a pure program script or uh actually getting into using midi with it and he uses uh it looks like pi game with it which is very cool yeah and again, all of these things are in Jupyter Notebooks and again with SoundCloud Clips to kind of play all of it off. So it's a really fun project if you're interested in either higher order math or you're interested in kind of combining sound and um, Python together. It's a, it's a really fun project. Really well presented. Kind of builds off some of the stuff that we talked about in Jupyter. Again, kind of more specifically, in this case, dealing with it in um, you know, creating those uh, individual sound waves and then combining them in interesting ways to that's the part that gets me excited is the whole idea of like yeah. kind of creating new sounds uh, by combining waves together. Yeah, totally. It's um, so something that regular listeners don't know about me is that before I think people at this point know that I like math. Yeah. But before I was really into math, I was really, and still am really into music. And I actually, in the early 2000s, Played keyboards for for a band out in out in Los Angeles. Tried to do the whole rock star thing, but I was really I got really into synthesizers, and I inherit not inherited my my grandfather's still alive, but he had an old Korg DS8 uh, FM synthesizer. Uh, that's a fun one that he just gave uh, gave to me, and man, I fell in love with it, and that was kind of my introduction to synthesizers. And, and I, I just used to spend hours just like playing with all the little settings yeah, yeah. and everything. So yeah, it is really fun to sort of, you know, see how you co- combine these things to create really new and unique sounds. And the idea of doing it in Python is really, really cool and really intriguing. And I'd love to, to play around with it some more. Yeah, I think this will be fun. I think it could lead into some of the other stuff you've been experimenting with and showing math in Python lately. <laughs> yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. This one we mentioned earlier in the episode. It's titled Navigating Namespaces and Scope in Python. It's based on a RealPython article by John Sturtz. In the course, instructor Johan Vergier takes you through how Python organizes symbolic names 
and objects and namespaces. When does Python create a new namespace? How variable scope determines symbolic name visibility? And what is the LEGB rule? I think it's a worthy investment of your time to learn how namespaces are implemented in Python and how to navigate through the layers of scope in your Python applications. All the video courses on RealPython are broken into easily consumable sections and include transcripts plus closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So what do you got for a project? Well, uh, speaking of math, I've got a pretty, pretty mathematical project. It is from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, NASA JPL. It's called F prime. It has nothing to do with derivatives for folks that <laughs> know, are familiar with that notation. Or maybe it does. I don't know. But it's a software framework for rapid development and deployment of embedded systems and spaceflight applications. So this is like combining everything that I that I love in life. And it first popped up on my radar on Twitter from someone named uh, Chris Anderson. And he just posted a picture of this uh, Mars helicopter. So the new Mars rover, Perseverance, on board was carrying a, a little helicopter. And that is running an open source flight code that the NASA JPL team open sourced. So I went and checked it out and saw that uh, 16% of the repository uses Python. I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. So the vast majority of it is C++. I started looking into it some more, and just it just kind of kept getting cooler and cooler the more that I, I read about it. It's a really interesting project because, so not only does this mean that probably Python is running on the Mars helicopter, so we'll actually have Python running on Mars. I haven't been able to like 100% verify that, but all the indications are that it, that it, that is actually true. But it, it, it's really beyond that. I mean, this, this Mars helicopter is almost entirely open sourced, both uh, software and hardware. So it is running Linux, which might be the first time we have Linux used on a, on a Mars mission. And well, at least on a, on a rover or something that's actually, you know, physically on, on Mars. It is uh, using this open source flight framework, which, which uses Python. And on top of that, all the parts that, it, that were used to build it are components that you can actually go buy off the shelf. So there's a, a possibility that you could, you could recreate this yourself at home, which is really pretty cool. I mean, to think that that, that kind of technology is, is going to be, be flying around on, on Mars, this little drone. Yeah. So I don't think it's actually flown yet. I don't think they've, they've actually deployed it. So we don't know whether or not it's it's going to be successful. The the Mars atmosphere is a lot thinner. There's a lot less gravity. So it's a very different environment to Earth. And I shouldn't say whether or not there's a lot less gravity, actually. I don't know that for certain. I can't remember off the top of my head. If, uh, but but yeah, the, the Martian atmosphere is thin. In fact, looking at this article, it says it's got just 1% the density of Earth's atmosphere. So the mechanics of flight are pretty different. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably a lot diff, lot more difficult to generate lift on Mars than it is on Earth. And but yeah, I just think it's it's amazing that 
we've got this uh, this little helicopter that that hopefully will be successful and 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 be able to fly. And it's uh it's it's got Python on it, and it's built using components that you can get off the shelf. And it just really seems like kind of a, a really unique and cool moment in spaceflight history that feels like you know you don't have to have a billion dollars <laughs> to go uh build something like this so yeah it's not outside the reach of the of the the regular human you know that's pretty cool right yeah yeah it's really neat well awesome well thanks for gathering all the articles and projects for us again this week and i'll talk to you soon yep sounds good Don't forget, you can get started on DigitalOcean's app platform for free at do.co slash realpython. I want to thank David Amos for coming on the show again. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player. And if you like the show, leave us a five-star rating and a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.